The more I thought about the title of this sermon, the more ludicrous it seemed, as if I was going to lead you all in a sing-along of Hakuna Matata. (laughs) Worry vanquished? Who out there has banished worry from their life? I'm not seeing any hands. I bet there aren't many hands up there at home either. Worry, after all, seems to be a part of life. When we don't have control over something we care deeply about, we worry. It's what we do. Such as how we as a congregation, community, and nation are going to continue to endure this pandemic. Or how we're going to work for genuine justice for all people in America. Or on a more personal level, you might be worried about how you're going to keep your job or your business or how your children or grandchildren will keep theirs. Any number of things can worry us. Our health, our work, politics, our family. The list goes on and on and on. Which should be a clue to us. With all this worrying, we should realize how little control we have over anything. We can control our own actions, and that's about it. We can't control what happens outside of us. Our brain, sensing a threat, and a lack of a way to deal with that threat, ruminates on it. For those of us who remember cassette tapes, and it wasn't that long ago, worry is like a cassette tape of threats playing 24-7, all the time. It takes a brutal toll on us. What is remarkable and perhaps crazy is that the psalmist is not worried about any of these threats at all. We've read in the Psalms about getting started on the right way. Go down the right path. Get off to a good start. That's the gist of Psalm 1. And then in Psalm 113, we've explored how God has a special regard for those who are the most vulnerable and beaten down. And then, in Psalm 69, we explored desperation, the wondering of if God is trustworthy. God doesn't seem to follow through when the waters of chaos are up to our necks. And now, in Psalm 27, the psalmist's trust in God is restored despite the threats all around him. How is that possible? How can this psalmist trust in God, his light and salvation, as he calls him, when God does not act according to human standards of trustworthiness? The answer is simple. He just does. He just trusts. When trust in yourself and in your own abilities fail, when even those closest to you fail to follow through, it's not like you have a lot of options left. We can muddle along in a more or less quiet desperation. We can double down and attempt to exert even more control on what's going on, causing probably a lot of destruction in the process. Or we can trust God anyway. Trust God anyway, despite the chaos and absurdity of the world. God is God, after all, and we are human beings by nature mortal and of limited perspective. 
God does not act according to human standards of trustworthiness because God is not bound by human standards. For God, trustworthiness and goodness are more expansive than we can possibly imagine from our limited one-person view. That also, this doesn't mean that God doesn't love and value humanity. God showed how much God valued humanity when he became human in the man Jesus. God in Christ endured the indignities, the chaos, the absurdity of the world from day one. Let's recap the story. Born out of wedlock, among animals, and laid in a feeding trough. The absurdities only grow from there. Magi arrived from the east. King Herod wanted him dead and killed all infant boys two years old and younger to try to get him. The family was forced to flee to Egypt. When Jesus grew up and began preaching and healing, his family thought he was out of his mind. They actually came in the first, in the first three Gospels. His family comes to fetch him because they think he's crazy. John's Gospel tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him yet. Jesus is clearly the black sheep of the family. Jesus' preaching, teaching, and healing brought him to Jerusalem, where within a week he was arrested, condemned, and crucified. Imagine what it would be like to hear this story for the first time, without any church upbringing to color your perceptions. It sounds sad, doesn't it? And frankly, undignified for the God of creation to become human, to suffer the indignities of human beings, to die, to rise again. But God had so much love for humanity that God was unafraid to seem undignified to human beings. Again, God is not bound by human standards, certainly not of dignity, God showed how infinite God's faithfulness was to humanity. God not only became human, but endured the indignities and absurdities of being human to reconcile us to himself. Why would God do that? Again, just love. Just like the psalmist just trusts, God just loves There's no rational explanation. There's no equation that I can put behind that. God just loves us. God's love and faithfulness are beyond our comprehension as they are beyond the comprehension of the psalmist. The psalmist with enemies all around isn't concerned with the why. Why God is the psalmist's light and salvation or stronghold or how God is those things, that isn't important. God just is those things. God simply is. And so the psalmist just trusts. That kind of trust is the bedrock of the Christian faith. We might, as scholar Peter Enns writes in his book, The Sin of Certainty, do better by substituting the word trust for faith. Every time we see the words words faith or believe in Scripture, we might do better by putting trust in there. Then we might get a better sense of what's going on with those words. Trust is in a who. 
It's not in a what. We Lutherans are very, very good at inculcating head faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with teaching the catechism or having Sunday school. With a bachelor's degree in religion and a master's degree in divinity, the head part of faith brought me to the ministry. And it brings a lot of young Lutherans, well, not just young Lutherans, brings a lot of Lutherans to the ministry. The problem comes when we confuse the what with the who. Jesus never told us to trust in the catechism. Jesus never told us to have trust in our own ideas or our doctrines about God. Jesus doesn't even tell us to place such ultimate trust in the Bible. Bible and catechism alike point to the who of faith. They point to the who. They carry the who. Scripture is the cradle of the Christ child. They point to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, active in love, working to reconcile a lost and hurting world to God. Ultimate trust belongs to God alone. Not to the Bible, not to the creeds, not to the catechism, not to our confessions, and certainly not to our own current thoughts about God, which are about as steady and stable as a reed blowing in the wind. The psalmist models a simple radical trust in God. And Jesus reminds us what a simple radical trust in God can do. When we radically trust in God and not in our own thoughts or our own abilities, we will find our worries slipping away, off to the side. As big as such worries are, when we know by faith that we are infinitely valuable to God, that God loves us and that God is faithful to us for no other reason but just because, then our fears are set aside. Priorities take shape. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, Jesus tells us. That doesn't mean don't be concerned with responsibilities here. Jesus, after all, says your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But it does mean that when we have our priorities straight, worry dissipates. I have to say, this is much easier to preach than it is to live. (laughs) Ask Sarah and ask my family about how sweet and even-tempered I naturally am. Or just ask the staff. That's what I like to say. I like to say that. I got that from my grandfather. Just, why can't everybody be sweet and even-tempered like me? I'm not naturally calm. I own that. But Jesus asks me and you to learn how to set our worries to the side. For the sake, for his sake. For the sake of the kingdom. It's part of our ongoing conversion in being, learning how to be a Christian and learning how to follow Christ. The way of being crucified to this world and is living as part of the really real world of God's kingdom. That transformation, that ongoing conversion is something that God has started in us and that God will bring to a shalom beyond our ability to comprehend.
Amen.